Welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. We bring you free-flowing conversations with top thought leaders in philanthropy and the nonprofit sector. Sit back, relax, listen and enjoy as we share ideas and discuss topics that are important, timely, and we hope will transform the nonprofit world. Hello, and welcome to Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Vitreo. This is episode 31, and it was recorded on Thursday, October the 10th, 2019. I'm Vincent Duckworth. I'm a fundraiser and a partner with Vitreo Group. We are a national agency focused on bold leadership and transformative fundraising. This is our 10th episode of 2019. We were joined by Eva Friesen, President and CEO of the Calgary Foundation, Martin Garber-Conrad, Chief Executive Officer of the Edmonton Community Foundation, Sharon Avery, CEO of the Toronto Foundation, and Mark Bloomberg, a partner with Bloomberg's Law. Our topic, the rise of the Community Foundation. Community foundations have become power players in philanthropy. How has this happened and what does it mean for the sector? There are significant opportunities and challenges facing North America's community foundations. From perpetual endowments to donor advised funds to making grants outside of their geography. Each of our guests are experts in these issues and more. Join us in conversation as they stake out their positions and share their insights. It's time for the Brain Trust Philanthropy Podcast. Welcome to episode 31 of Brain Trust Philanthropy, powered by Betrayal. This is our 10th episode of 2019. Our topic, the rise of the Community Foundation. Community foundations have become power players in philanthropy. Why has this happened and what does it mean for the sector? We have four amazing guests with us today. They're excited to be here. I'm excited to be here. Let's get started. First, joining us from Toronto, we have Sharon Avery. Sharon is the president and CEO of the Toronto Foundation. This is Sharon's second visit to our podcast. Sharon joined us a few weeks ago when our topic was collaboration in the nonprofit sector. Sharon, welcome back. Thanks. It's nice to be back. Sharon, we're going to hear more about your views on the role of community foundations in just a few minutes, but for right now, I'm curious. You joined the Toronto Foundation in 2016 after, I think it was eight years at UNICEF Canada. In comparing your work with UNICEF with your role at the Toronto Foundation, what have been some of the biggest learnings you've had? Um, it's, you know, it's interesting. When I got this job, I surprised a lot of folks in my circle saying, what on earth are you doing? You've spent the last eight years looking out at the whole world and, and um, you're going to zero in on Toronto and the, what is the Community Foundation and what is the Toronto Foundation? And it was a really uh, big adjustment. And so I say the big things for me have been it's not that different. Um, community development is community development, uh, whether you're um, looking internationally or you're looking in your own city. Um, poverty looks a little different in Canada, but a lot of the issues are the same. Working at the grassroots level with organizations and listening to lived experience wasn't actually um, happening a lot here in Toronto. I was quite shocked by that. And so that's been something we've been really pushing um, in all our channels here uh, since I've come. Um, and I guess just the fact that what attracted me to this role was, A, I spent 20 years fundraising and you don't fundraise uh, in community foundations. You, you, you have a lot of relationships, but it's different. But also uh, the chance to actually work in the most diverse city in the world, um, it doesn't feel like I'm not in a global role any longer. It just feels like I'm more intensely connected to that. So that's what I've learned. 
Well, that's a great learning that there, it wasn't that much different. Um, and, and, and I'm glad to hear that, actually, because uh, uh, those two roles are so, so important, what you were doing with UNICEF and the Toronto Foundation. So thanks for sharing that with us. Um, I'm sure you can fit more stuff in around that as you go forward. Um, next, we have joining us from Toronto, we have Mark Bloomberg. Mark is a partner at Bloomberg's Law in Toronto. He works almost exclusively advising nonprofits and registered charities on their work in Canada and abroad. This is Mark's first visit with us at Brain Trust Philanthropy. Welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thank you very much. Mark, at Betrayo, we are big fans of your work and your thought leadership in the sector. I personally appreciate the work you've done on your global philanthropy blog and most particularly your charity data portal. Before we get into your views on community foundations, I'm wondering if you, if you might be able to share with us more about this data portal, specifically what it is and what inspired you to develop it in the first place. Absolutely. Um, so the data per, the, the charity data.ca uh, was set up a few years ago because um, there was a similar initiative that a, uh, a registered charity had had for a, couple, a few years, but they, had, uh, they didn't have the means or interest, I guess, to maintain it. And so they basically took it down. And um, it was, uh, unfortunately, the CRA's charity listing is cumbersome and difficult for some people to use. So we created uh, a portal that basically had not only information going back about 15 years on each of the registered charities, but also a portal that allowed you to search in about or sort things in about 30 or 35 different ways, which is much more than what the CRA website uh, has. And unfortunately, CRA recently has removed about 10 years of their information. So now they only have five years information on their charities listing. So um, I wasn't sure. I was thinking that we may not need charitydata.ca anymore. But um, unfortunately, with the way things have gone with CRA, um, it will probably be uh, needed unless they, they change their course. And the, the Global Philanthropy blog was just a, an initiative to try and have as much information available to the public dealing with uh, essentially charity law compliance uh, as well as sort of practical uh, legal ethical issues, um, sort of a belief in the importance of rule of law and a feeling that there's a lot of misinformation out there in terms of what is you know, legal requirements relating to charities and also CRA is sort of a little handcuffed um, in terms of providing information to the public. Uh, it has to be in English and French and it has to be meeting various standards. So a lot of their documents that the public is entitled to, it's very hard for them to get them. So things like letters to charities when they've done things wrong and they've been revoked and we felt that it was important if CRA is revoking charities that the public have access to the information um, and, and that. So we put up a lot of material there uh, trying to help people just understand how to run a charity well and uh, avoid problems. It's a great blog. Thanks, Mark. And um, I, you should know uh, that that we and probably many others um, go to that portal whenever we have um, a, a conversation with a with a potential client, uh, someone who's interested in in, in working uh, with us. We we go there first to have a sense of of. Uh, what's up with them historically, at least on the financial front. So thanks for that. No, our um, pleasure. Very, very good, very good site. Um, joining us from Edmonton, uh, we have Martin Garber-Conrad. Um, Martin is the Chief Executive Officer of the Edmonton Community Foundation. And like Mark, this is Martin's first visit to our podcast. Welcome, Martin. Thank you. And, and I was a little worried that I would mix up your last name, like put one first or, or one wrong way. I hope I got it right. Uh, it's not like that's never happened. Uh, just don't call me late for dinner. All right. 
<laughs> well, well, Martin is new to our podcast. He's no stranger to podcasting. Uh, the Edmonton Community Foundation has a wonderful podcast. It's called The Well-Endowed Podcast. Uh, this is a truly great name for a community foundation podcast. Martin, there's not a lot of podcasts being produced by community foundations in Canada. What inspired the Edmonton Community Foundation to do a podcast, and how's it been received? Well, that's a good question, because these things very quickly recede into history, and uh, it seems like we've always been doing it. But um, I, I think there were a couple of reasons. We've we've been doing print material for a very long time, and uh, felt it was important to try to uh, get the word out through some of the new media. Uh, we have a very young city and are very conscious of different age groups and various other diversities. And so we thought we'd try it. And uh, the name came very early in our uh, podcast journey and we liked it and uh, thought it was just uh, edgy enough to uh, uh, to be useful, and it seems to have really caught on. I think we're up to uh, episode 37 or 38. Uh, we've got an excellent team here that enjoys doing it, and uh, there's been a really positive response from the community. Well, that's great. I know on the last podcast, uh, when I talked a little bit about this with um, in the pre-show with um, with the group, and Sharon was on the call. She was um, she had a bit of a, a, a an envious crush on the name of your podcast, the Well Endowed Podcast. It's a great name for um, for that. <laughs> she said, if they "Yeah, and I, have it, she was taking it." Yeah, well, and I didn't even think of it, but. Uh, uh, Somebody did, and and we're happy for it. I think, aside from from the cuteness factor, uh, there's there's little enough consciousness about the whole endowment concept, uh, e even within the nonprofit sector. And so, anything we can do to raise the profile of that word, which for us is absolutely central to uh, to our business model and to how we understand the role of community foundations. So uh, uh, having that serious side as well as, uh, as, as a bit more fun angle to it uh, works pretty well. Well, that's great. I know we're going to get into that conversation about endowment later in this podcast, but for now, thank you for, uh, for talking about that. Finally, joining us from Calgary, we have Eva Friesen. Eva is the president and CEO of Calgary Foundation, the Calgary Foundation. And like Mark and Martin, this is Eva's first visit with us on our podcast. I think you did a podcast last week, uh, but we're glad you're on ours today. Welcome, Eva. Well, thank you. And I want to thank you, Vincent, for upping my cool factor. I told my daughters I was going to be on your podcast, and that really elevated me in their eyes. <laughs> well, anything we could do. <laughs> they didn't know I knew what a podcast was. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, now, now, now you're going to be a veteran. Um, Eva, the Calgary Foundation, like most of the larger urban community foundations in Canada, has a strong set of initiatives that both leads and supports. Uh, one of the initiatives at the Calgary Foundation is a program called uh, Gen YYC. The mission of this program is, quote, uh, to provide a uniquely immersive professional development experience for the next generation of leaders. Uh, there's more to it, but that's uh, that's the, the, the essence of it. Before we hear from you more broadly on community foundations, I'm wondering if you could share 
a little bit of a snapshot of why the Calgary Foundation started this initiative and how's it going. Sure, I love talking about that initiative. Like, like everyone out there in today, we all care about how to uh, be relevant to that next group of young people who will lead this country and our cities, the, the millennials. And so as we pondered how to do our work in a manner to be relevant, we came up with the idea together with the Chamber of Commerce, so they were our partners in creating this learning opportunity, learning about community leadership. And the learning includes how to be an entrepreneur and run a business. The learning also includes how to be a good community builder. And uh, we found, to our surprise, that the most appealing part of this program, there's a cohort, I'll go back, mechanics, cohort of 40 people uh, apply, uh, 40 get chosen to be in a group, and they are in the, a member of the group for two, a two-year period, and it's a learning. Part of the learning and the part that they are the most keen about is learning about community, about needs in community, and about how to become a community builder. That can include philanthropy. And what the Calgary Foundation does is makes available $50,000 for each cohort group to give as grants to the areas that they deem to be priority of interest to them in community building. And we've discovered there's no better way to turn people into philanthropists than to give them the opportunity to give grants to things they care about. So um, that's, that's what Gen YYC is. I think we're in our third cohort group now. We're very pleased to be a partner with the Chamber of Commerce on that, and it's, it's working well. Well, that's great. I, um, I love all of the initiatives that are being done by your community foundations overall in Toronto and Edmonton and, and in Calgary. Uh, such amazing things that are enabled that I think a lot of people might not know a lot about. Um, but that one um, for the millennials in Calgary, I, I, I just thought it would be interesting to have you talk a little more about that. I think it's really interesting that they're interested in community building. So thanks for that, Eva. You're welcome. Okay, let's get started. Thank you all for joining us on this, our, our 31st podcast. Over the last 25 years, I have seen uh, both evolution and revolution in the community foundation space. In general, I have seen the major community foundations in Canada emerge as powerful forces of philanthropy. Some of this has been because of the incredible investment by donors. Some of this has been due to the leaders and leadership that has and is involved with our community foundations. And some of this has been because of the innovative initiatives funded and supported by these foundations. And there are lots of other things going on as well. In recent years, significant opportunities and challenges have arisen for community foundations. Should their mandates continue to be restricted primarily by geography? Should their endowments be perpetual? Are there downsides to donor-advised funds? To name just a few. Today we have a panel of community foundation experts. And at the risk of singling out our hometown favorite, I'm gonna start with you, Eva. Eva, when we did our prep for this show, you intimated to me that you had an issue with the working title for this podcast, uh, which actually tickled me. Because, uh, so the rise of the Community Foundation. So let's start there. What is it about the title that you would change? And further, what are your thoughts on the short list of opportunities and challenges that I just listed? Or you can throw those to the curb and bring up your own. Yeah, I don't like your title at all. And it almost made me decide not to join your podcast. How's that? Oh, and, no. And is two reasons. Title? I'm sorry. <laughs> The rise of sounds and, and to talk about, and you used the word the power, a powerful force. 
You know, those mm-hmm. aren't words that I would use to describe the work of Calgary Foundation or any community foundation. So mm-hmm. we're very much more a part of and a, you know, from the bottom up and support and the rising tide that lifts all boats, I'll use that word. And so, you know, it felt just so um, apart from and in the center, which isn't how mm-hmm. I see our work. So that's why I didn't like your title. And then also the rise of, well, you all know the rise and fall is how the words usually go. And I have no interest in thinking about the fall of. So, <laughs> And maybe that's how I could, the way we, we could avoid that fall of community foundations is to stay relevant. And you raised good questions. Geography is a good question. The world is much more global than it was when community foundations started. And so we like to think of our, our focus is local communities, but what that, that definition has changed over time. And, and we have local focus, but global flexibility. That's the way we describe that. Because many donors that we support and work with have global interests. And, and our purpose is to support the donor. You know, perpetual is another good question. In the time that I've been here, I've seen the idea of an in-perpetuity endowment, you know, has come back into favor lately. It fell out of favor a few years back. Um, you know, accusations of money sitting on the sidelines. But uh, today, everybody seems to value that an organization to be sustainable needs to have some reserve funds and some uh, income that it can rely on that isn't going to fall at the whim of funders that they might have. So we encourage strongly the charities in Calgary to build endowments for their own sustainability. And uh, they don't have to be with us. They can be held anywhere. But we just think an endowment is a good idea for sustainability. And so I, I more and more, and that's why people are part of a community foundation. It, it's those that believe in the value of that endowment, of the in-perpetuity investment. But uh, So I'd prefer your title be something like, you know, the... Uh, expanded impact of community foundation movement. How's that? I love it. All right. Now, uh, uh, this is a conversation with, uh, with, with lots of people around the table, some of whom I'm sure share what you just uh, uh, share your views on this, and some may have some differing views. Who wants to weigh in on that? We put Eva on the spot to start. Um, anybody want to talk about uh, uh, some of the things I shared or with some of the things that Eva talked about? Don't be shy. Well, yeah, go ahead. Uh, Martin, did I hear you? Uh, uh, you were. You, let's well, it here. sounded like I was interrupting someone, but if not, no, I'll not. Uh, I'll weigh in. <clears throat> I think the. Uh, I mean, there there are certainly ambiguities in the title, and there's ambiguities in in our roles. Uh, as we've grown in size, we are uh, we either are or are close to being the largest non-governmental funder in town. So that does uh, that does suggest some power and influence, uh, and and certainly in the the whole notion of privilege is is becoming. Uh, very much uh, a topic of discussion. Nevertheless, the the other side of of this increasing size and role 
whether we call it power or influence or impact, is that um, not only we, but but the whole field of philanthropy is still uh, dwarfed by uh, both individual donations and uh, government funding. So we're we're always in that position of yes, there are certainly things that we can do, and there are probably more things that we can do than than we're willing to do now. But in the whole context of funding for what we consider to be the sector, uh, we're we're still very modest players in uh, in all the funding that goes into making communities work. So that's that's kind of the uh, uh, the dynamic or the uh, two-sided uh, nature of uh, of this business from where I sit. What's your view on perpetual endowment? Sorry, Sharon, you weigh in. Well, I know Martin will have a definite view on perpetual endowments. Do you want me to wait, or do you want me to dive in? No, because I was not going I want there. You to dive I was in. somewhere else. Dive in. Martin, so I, Martin will so, have a chance to come back and rebut. rebut. Well, and, and I'm really building off something Martin said that just struck me. So I'm so just context. This is only my third year at the Toronto Foundation. I'm totally new to the movement. And it's been such an um, experience of learning uh, in that time, sort of as we reflected in the opening. But what I would say is Toronto Foundation is a funny beast in a way because, you know, we all joke about us being the center of the universe, but Toronto Foundation is not. I mean, Eva and Mark have bigger organizations than I do. And, it, and, and uh, you know, we are going to turn 40 in a couple of years. Uh, so we're still pretty young. And, and so what's interesting is that um, it, it creates a different kind of dynamic for us in this community. We're less known. We, have, we, are, we are, in quotes, a lesser player, although we do have, you know, a half a billion in assets. And so what I'm finding that's really interesting, just going back to Martin's comment about um, government and individuals being the bigger players ultimately in this space, um, I actually think what makes us even more relevant today than perhaps ever before is the need to be a bridge between those things. Um, and we're, you know, we've been doing, we've, we've been holding the a legacy fund for the federal and provincial governments from the Pan Am Games, uh, the thinking 20 year fund, and we're, we're helping to distribute uh, dollars to venues from Pan Am. We're just about to take on um, a global fund for gender equality uh, from the federal government. And, you know, we have all this great governance and judiciary experience, but but our teams are quite small, right? We we are run really lean machines. We're very low cost, and thus we're very nimble. And I think that's a really interesting space for us to explore as community foundations, not just in an isolated way, but in a national way in terms of helping to um, better educate uh, to government and to individual philanthropists but also to better bring them together. And I think, I mean, I think that's a really interesting new, it, maybe, maybe it's not new, maybe it's just new to me because I'm new to the movement, but that's an opportunity I see for relevance for us, um, uh, you know, in a very nonpartisan way, but in a, in, with some real power to, in a good, in good power to influence what, you know, for, for so often we're focused on the most marginalized populations. So 
some community foundations as bridges and brokers. Yes. Fair enough. Thank you. Mark, you've been sitting in the wings. Sure. Um, well, there's lots of community foundations in Canada. Um, some of them are members of Community Foundations of Canada, others are not. There's very small ones with only tens of thousands in assets, and then you have others that have uh, more than a billion dollars in assets. You have some that just give out grants to charities and others that are doing full-fledged programming and all sorts of things. Um, there's huge differences in terms of staff and knowledge and complexity and all that. And um, so it's really hard actually to um, say that much with respect to community foundations. And in fact, one sort of needs to look more at uh, individual organizations and ask uh, in terms of, you know, what are they doing and, and things like that. Um, and I agree with Martin's point that government funding, which is about, I think it's about 68 or so percent of the sector's revenue is very important. Philanthropy is maybe five or seven percent, uh, including all individual donations, corporate donations and, and stuff like that. Um, and um, some organizations, when they are having hundreds of millions or a billion dollars, I would argue that although some may not want to refer to it in terms of power and influence, that reminds me of uh, Marcel Lorzier, who moved from Imagine Canada to a large foundation. And he said, uh, it's amazing how, um, you know, Within a day, you're much more handsome and your jokes are much funnier. The fact of the matter is uh, very few people ever are prepared to be completely upfront and honest with groups that are sitting on a billion dollars if you're in a charity. And um, and it's the difference of whether you're going to get money or not from that organization. So there are definitely some issues. And I agree with Eva's point about the world is more global now. Things have changed a lot. Um, but it, some community foundations have changed a lot and some haven't. And uh, I have a number of concerns in general with community foundations, but not all. Um, some of them, it relates to what is the community. And if you pick a certain narrow community, uh, in certain cases, um, it can be of limited uh, public benefit. If you take a community foundation like Toronto, it's a huge city, um, such a diverse city. So you could be involved with all sorts of programs, um, which it might not be the same if it's a small town somewhere um, where the community, if it's defined as a 10 kilometer square area, could uh, could be quite narrow. So, And many people don't view their community even in terms of cities, they think in terms of uh, global and things like that. So that's sort of a concern that I have. And I guess I would have a different view than Eva. I would say that actually there are some people obviously who believe in endowments. And I mean, when I refer to it in this case, I mean a perpetual endowment. But I think that for a charity and sustainability, actually having a flexible um, reserve fund is far more valuable than having an endowment. Because if when things are really bad and your returns on the endowment are very poor, uh, that might be the time that you actually need to really dip into that uh, reserve fund the most. So I'm uh, more in favor of flexibility and even donors who are adamantly opposed to flexibility and they wanted a perpetual endowment and they can't be convinced otherwise. Um, it's always a good idea to keep the ability to make changes in the future, uh, even if it requires the donor's consent, because uh, donors change their mind and they can be upset later when something is uh, not what they want at that point in time. Um, so, yeah, no, I do have some concerns. I, I think that uh, I worry that um, whether it's in terms of DAFs and also in terms of perpetual endowments, that sometimes large amounts of resources, we're not talking hundreds of dollars, we're talking hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, uh, can end up in sort of intermediary organizations. And I have the same concern with private foundations and, and other types of entities. And in some cases, um, 
you know, an argument can be made that this is bringing more money into the sector, but there's also a concern, and especially with the rise of the the uh, the, the DAFs, the donor advised funds that are affiliated with financial institutions, there's also an argument that money that would have gone directly to operating charities to help them are instead going into DAFs and being dribbled out at 5% a year. So those are some uh, sort of concerns, and uh, community foundations are so varied and diverse, and um, I see there are some community foundations, pretty much every dollar that goes in pretty much goes out. Um, you know, they don't have large assets, but they money comes in and then you have others where it's a completely different model. So different models. And, um, and of course, the community foundations don't have complete control over this. You have donors, you have other stakeholders. Um, so it's not like uh, anyone on this call could switch it overnight to being a different model because they thought it was a better idea. You still have to deal with the public there and, uh, and donors who are willing to give. Um, often they have their own interests, their own way of doing it, and one has to be respectful of it. Um, but um, I would prefer that uh, community foundations are very open and upfront about some of the limitations of some of the things, whether they're donor advice funds or, um, uh, you know, uh, perpetual endowments. And, uh, and so that at least donors can make informed decisions uh, in, in under, and understand the, uh, not only the potential good that can come out of some of these things, but also the, the limitations and problems that can come out of them as well. I'm going to jump in there, Mark, if I may. And, uh, Please you know, do. Talk, talk about the, I think uh, community foundations, their niche and I think it's all philanthropy is good philanthropy and absolutely the donors at the center and their wish is what they care about. And when they care about a legacy endowment, that's when the community foundation can play a role. It would never be a community foundation's place to try to convince a donor to do something else because donors at the center and their philanthropy is what's important. But the, the reason and what the story that we put forth, when you say you encourage organizations to have flexibility so they can dip into capital when you need to, you know, I was the CEO of an organization that prior to my coming, an operating organization, prior to my coming had a $2 million endowment or a $2 million fund as a bequest from a supporter who had passed. When I came to the job, that was the end of how they had eaten it away, subsidizing operations, and it was fully gone. And what a what a tragedy everyone thought that was. Uh, we have a fund in the Calgary Foundation, million dollars started 20 years ago. Today, that fund has granted out 1.4 million in community, and the size of the fund is 1.6 million, and it just keeps on giving. And it's that model over time that is way more stability, has offers way more stability for a charity than the one who dips in and then just doesn't have the capability or discipline to not dip in or replace. So um, I think. But again, it's the charities, certainly it's hard to start an endowment when you're not able to meet your daily needs in your organization. Boy, do I get that. Um, but there's, just like all of us as individuals, you know, create RRSPs for our retirement. Charities need to create uh, funds that they don't touch so they have some flexibility and aren't victim of what funders tell them to do. I think that's very important for a charity. All right, we've heard from Mark, we've heard from Eva, Martin, or Sharon, did you want to add to that? That's, that's certainly my uh, uh, perspective is very, very similar to Eva's. Um, we, we never claim that uh, endowments are the only way to give or that 
those are the only kind of funds that charities should have. Uh, charities that are able should definitely have reserve funds, emergency funds, whatever, but the turnaround time on endowments, at least in the current economic climate, say over the last 20 or 30 years, is such that uh, it's not like you have to wait for 100 years to see the benefits, but uh, uh, we have similar stories that Eva uh, reported where in as little as 17 years the funds have uh, given out the entire amount of the gift and and the the balance is substantially higher so uh, I don't think that's an unreasonable kind of time frame for either charities or individuals uh, they, they can see uh, the the benefit and the outcome from their endowment with within their lifetime it's it's not a thing that has to wait several generations and forward-thinking charities can imagine uh, uh, being around in 15 years and being able to start off the uh, fund development year with something rather than nothing and uh, uh, not having to start from zero every year so we we think it's it's a very legitimate thing for both donors and charities to do, uh, but it's it's not the only thing. Uh, it's it's not the only kind of philanthropy that individuals engage in or ought to engage in, and therefore it's not the only kind of uh, fund development that charities should do. But it's a very important piece, <clears throat> and we're seeing more and more charities. Uh, uh, come to understand that and uh, and begin to uh, get on board with uh, endowments. Sharon, I think Mark, oh, sorry. I, I just want to ask Mark, ahead, when you Sharon, say... In, yeah. yeah. Mark, please go ahead and then we'll bring Sharon in. Yeah, Martin, when you say endowments, are you meaning perpetual endowments? Are you encouraging like small charities to set up perpetual endowments or are you encouraging them to have an endowment like a long-term fund that could be over 50, 100 or 200 years, but it's a long-term fund, it's not an endowment? We, endowment and perpetual endowment are identical in our usage. Um, I mean, it's arguable whether anything I mean, how much detail one can talk about anything over a period of two or three hundred years, but uh, we we definitely don't think of endowments as twenty-year funds. Um, and I mean, there there may be a niche for that too, but uh, we're we're essentially talking uh, permanent endowments. Great, thanks for the clarification, Martin. Sharon, did you want to weigh in? Well, I was just going to. Again, build on this conversation, you know, for, for, as, as Mark has clearly pointed out, there's a joke in community foundations. You've met one community foundation, then you've met one community foundation. Like, it, it, there is no cookie cutter for this. And I think, I mean, I think that's right in that as place based organizations, you, you're, you're building models for your, your area. Although I, I violently agree with Mark. Um, that we cannot be geographically limited. Um, that's obviously that's my UNICEF self coming in and 
but I, and, and, and so that, that's a piece I want to, to just say. I also think that long-term investments, whether they're in perpetuity or they're longer-term funds, are relevant for the issues we care most about as community foundations because these are problems that are absolutely um, going to take decades to solve. Um, so I want to make that point. I guess I wanted to just put another uh, relevant piece. There's two more relevant pieces on the table, I think, where community foundations are really important today or at least should be thinking in, in different terms about our work. And one is um, the stat I'm always obsessing over is the, how philanthropy is so patterned in this country, how habitual um, uh, patterns of giving are to um, a small number of organizations in the country. And, and Mark probably knows more about these organizations than anyone. But, you know, the stat from Imagine Canada is 66% of all donation revenue in Canada goes to 1% of the charities. And these are not uh, these are fabulous organizations. Many of them uh, are big academic institutions and healthcare facilities. They're, they are important to our communities. Um, but uh, a lot of the smaller orgs and in, in cities and, and small communities that are doing the heavy lifting on the intractable problems are not being, um, I mean, they're struggling. And I think that part of the role uh, in where, whether it's a donor-advised fund or whatever that philanthropic tool is, to actually build a rapport with a philanthropist where I can actually have an honest conversation with them and work to influence their giving a bit. Um, I have peers that may disagree you can influence it, but I'm seeing it here that lots of donors are saying, you know what, I want to shake it up. I want to do things differently. And we have a great opportunity to help um, with our community-based knowledge get donors thinking differently. If that's local, great. If that's global, great. Um, but I think that uh, I think that's a role we can play. And then I think the other thing we haven't talked about at all, um, but gets a lot of criticism absolutely out there, is that we have large investment pools of money. They're invested in the public market. And that's something um, many of us are working to change. Uh, we've just uh, committed 20% of our main pool to move into socially responsible investments. We have a $12 million pool in impact investing. And when, our, when this equality fund joins our organization, we'll have almost 40% of our assets will be doing good work as well. And I think that, um, you know, I just admire our colleagues at the Hamilton Community Foundation who are working towards 100%. And I think that that's, you know, that's a space that's challenging for us as a movement, but I think it's interesting and important. Um, I'm glad you brought that up about the um, the, uh, the investment policies of the Community Foundation. I know lots of people have questions about that. If uh, if the will of the group is to talk more about that, we should. Um, I'm also want to. We talked about it a couple times. It's been brought up about um, donor advised funds, uh, not only within the Community Foundation but now uh, with with uh, large financial institutions. I'm wondering. Um, I mean, there, there, there's lots of uh, uh, of upsides, um, uh, many upsides to those. Uh, are there some downsides to donor advised funds, either within community foundations or within the sector overall? I'll start with that, if I may. It's Eva, because I'm not never, you know, hesitant. Um, I yeah, think you, there you, are you're no such a wallflower. Eva. Yeah, I'm Mr. Wallflower, Vincent. I think there's no downside. I'm going to stick my neck out and say that. Um, it's funny, you know, we we work hard to do fam what we call family philanthropy and donor engagement. We want to serve and engage 
generation after generation. The result of that is a donor-advised fund. What a beautiful thing. We have funds that have the fourth and fifth generations involved in the grant making. And that begets further philanthropy and community building. Whether it's directly to charities or through us, it doesn't matter. That's a beautiful thing. I cannot see a downside to a donor-advised fund in my world. All right. You've stuck your neck out. Anybody want to uh, uh, mitigate that? I certainly don't see a whole lot of upside to uh, donor advised funds at financial institutions. And I think that uh, points back again to uh, the value of community foundations being at least largely related to a particular community. Uh, whereas DAFs at financial institutions are not and are likely to become even less so over the years. Uh, again, it's, you know, is any philanthropy really bad? Well, maybe not, but it's, it's not as good as it could be. And, uh, I, I think the, uh, the notion of, of connecting resources with, uh, the community of need is, is very important and I think in um, the world of the, the way in which the media is coalescing and becoming less accessible I think the uh, some of the large national charities uh, have have a uh, significant ability to uh, to be part of that 1% that gets a disproportionate share of, uh, of giving vis-a-vis -vis local community charities that, that don't have those resources. So again, is that necessarily bad? No, but I think a geographically focused community foundation can provide some kind of balance and some, uh, preference for local as opposed to national while still being able to uh, provide donors the opportunity to give to any of the registered charities in Canada. Uh, so uh, it, it's a matter of balance for me. So let okay. me ask Martin, how, how to help me understand how is a donor advised fund in a financial institution, how is that a bad thing? Um, because the decisions very quickly revert to Toronto or somewhere else and uh, have no connection with a particular community because all the financial institutions, well, virtually none of them are, uh, are identified with a particular community. They're all... Uh, either national or global. So if I can continue, you know, it, it, um, I think the financial institutions are motivated, of course, to keep money on their books and then individuals are more profitable. And like any business, you know, their motive is to make profit and, and nothing's wrong with that in our capitalist society. So if, uh, if they can capitalize on capturing philanthropy, you know, it's, 
it's not as informed by knowledge of community needs as a fund with us, but it's a beginning. And I think it represents an opportunity for all community foundations to partner with financial institutions and share, bring our knowledge of community bear and uh, make it potentially a better thing. And if, uh, you know, when Toronto's got good, you know, even if the money goes to Toronto, Martin, and decisions go there, they got good people in Toronto too, some. Well, you know, if, if, it, if it went to certain people we know and love, that that would be a whole different story. But uh, I, I'm not sure uh, uh, the global financial institutions, uh, I, I, I don't imagine they all consult with uh, Sharon as uh, fully as, as we might hope. Well, that's a good segue. We've had the Alberta debate on this, and uh, and it seems a little split. That's uh, exactly what we're looking for. This is good podcast. Keep it up. Um, Sharon or Mark, do you want to weigh in on on, uh, on upside, downside of donor advised funds inside or outside of uh, community foundations? Uh, yeah, Turk, I could do that. Um, it's obviously a somewhat complicated issue, and it hasn't really been looked at as closely in Canada as in America. And the statistics, unfortunately, are not as fulsome in terms of uh, disclosure of DAFs in many cases that one can fully understand what's actually going on with some of the DAFs. But um, in the U.S., there's been concerns. There are, uh, we label the concerns as two types of concerns. There's concerns from a public policy point of view which is, you know, someone can put in, uh, you know, a lot of money into a DAF and they get an immediate tax benefit. And in the U.S., there isn't a disbursement quota for these public uh, charities. Um, and uh, so actually the DAF can just sit on the money and uh, not that, that obviously most do because most are actually pushing out money. Um, but uh, certainly with one fund or 100 funds out of the 1,000, they can uh, potentially uh, never spend the money and there's no legal problem with that the way the rules are written in the States. Um, and again, this is just like um, DAFs can be in community foundations, they can be in financial institutions, and they can be in just about any other charity. And we don't even know which charities in Canada have DAFs. We know the ones that advertise it, but there's a lot that have donor advised funds and it's not advertised. So we don't know as much, nearly as much as what we, we would like to know about it. Um, but the rise of the um, financial institutions and the amounts of money and their growth, um, you know, we talked about the title being the rise of uh, community foundations and uh, Eva didn't like it, and I think uh, there's there's some uh, element there. Um, but you know, if um, you know, if in the end the the financial institutions and others grow tremendously, so for example, they have five or ten or twenty times the assets of the community foundations. It does make a difference in terms of the role of the community foundations and things like that. And uh, I uh, so there's uh, definitely concerns when large amounts of heavily tax subsidized money, sometimes it's 50 cents on the dollar, sometimes it's 70 cents on the dollar, is going into something and it's not being spent. But if someone loves perpetual endowments, they probably are not going to have as many problems with a DAF because uh, they may they may not be that uh, different in some cases uh, in terms of the actual impact. But uh, yeah, so those are some of the concerns on the public policy side. Um, on the uh, donor side, um, they often work out very well for the donor. It can be a good thing, but as a lawyer here dealing with charities and large philanthropists, um, I tend to see the parts where there's a, um, a problem, and, uh, and that means that uh, when there's a problem, like for example, a donor 
you know, had said that they want to, um, you know, put it in as uh, maybe a perpetual foundation, a perpetual amount in their donor advice fund, but then they change their mind because their grandkid has cancer and they want to spend more. And is it possible to change it and uh, make, uh, you know, things like that? There's issues, uh, some issues around investing and there's issues around fees charged. And, you know, there are DAFs that charge a quarter percent. It's a very low fee. And there's other DAFs that are charging, you know, one or one and a half percent and, and, you know, all sorts of different possibilities. And I'm not even saying it's a bad thing to charge fees as part of the sustainability of the DAF. It makes perfect sense. But if you have a lot of money um, and a lot of money is going to DAF, both the DAF fee and also the investment advisors, in the end, that might be in some cases very close to the amount that's actually coming out of the DAF for, uh, for charitable. So then in those cases, it is a concern. So I would say every charity is different and um, you need to basically look just closely at the charity, what it's doing. Uh, there's a concern of many small charities, and I think Sharon alluded to it, that, you know, 66% of the money is basically going to 1% of the groups. Um, some people don't see any problem with that or question it at all. Um, you know, survival of the fittest and that sort of thing. But uh, basically, there are a lot of small groups that are worried that a donor might have been consistently giving them, you know, a certain amount every year. And now they put a lot into a DAF and the amount that comes out may be much less. Um, and so, yeah, there, there can be some concerns. Uh, from the, the the charities in terms of are the DAFs facilitating more money coming into the charity sector? Well, they're obviously facilitating money coming to the charity sector, but are they actually having the money go out into um, operating charities and charities that are actually doing the programming, etc.? Or is it more of a hold another holding pattern where we can have tens or hundreds of billions of dollars sitting around um, and not being used for um, uh, for operating uh, purposes, but uh, it's uh, investments. And yes, you can do impact investing and other things. These are better than doing nothing, um, but um, it's uh, sometimes there are better options than uh, than that. It's Sharon. So uh, I've been sort of just taking this in and trying to figure out where I fit in this dialogue. So... Um, I guess, you know, I would not want what's happened in the States to happen here in terms of where donor advised funds have gone there. I think um, there was a, a great piece of work done by um, uh, PFD and community, uh, sorry, Philanthropic Foundations of Canada and Community Foundations of Canada about a year ago, uh, mapping the ecosystem of the average individual philanthropist. And it's the most horrifying map you could imagine when you're talking about their philanthropy and how much private sector influences individuals um, and how little, how little influence the actual sector itself has on the giving patterns of, of individuals. So in that way, um, I really do think that donor-advised funds, um, well, I think they're a relevant tool. I think, I think that philanthropy needs, it, it, I think philanthropy is a system. I think it, as a system it needs disruption. I think we absolutely need to break the given. I mean, we're looking at, at our Vital Signs report just came out this week that, you know, the giving patterns of Torontonians, and certainly we see this across Canada for the last decade, is going down. Um, and we need, to, we need to have different ways to engage people in philanthropy that's different and, and get them giving to, I think, a much broader range of organizations than they're currently doing. I do not believe in surprises this. And I've worked for some of those organizations. And so, um, uh, but the fact is that I also don't want private sector having so much influence um, on philanthropy. I mean, we see financial advisors who, many of whom I love and work with, but there are many out there that 
actually want to hold on to the money. You're seeing more and more family offices set up donor-advised funds. And, and to Mark's point, there is so little transparency on how that works. You know, as a community foundation, we are motivated to get more money out the door. I mean, most of my funds, most of my donor-advised funds are not permanent. Um, most of mine are flow-through funds. And so our objective is to get as much money flowing out to the sector as we possibly can. And I don't think, um, as much as I love my co- I have many good colleagues in the finance sector doing this work, but I don't know that I'm, I'm seeing the push to get money out the door in the same way as, as, uh, as you would in, in our sector. Sure, and that's a, a fantastic point um, uh, for us to to maybe pause. I can see podcasts coming out exclusively around donor advised funds, perpetual endowments, and 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 I there are, there's a whole series I see coming out of this. It's been a, a fantastic conversation. I'm really sorry that we're limited by time. Um, I, I, I have all of you got time for another couple hours. I'm just kidding. We can't do that on a podcast, but. Um, <laughs> But the conversation could go really deep on any of these topics, and I really appreciate um, uh, the, the, the professionalism, the experience, and the respect that uh, we've all had during this conversation um, with differing points of view, and in some cases, polarized different points of view. So I, I'm, I'm really mindful that this is, these are important topics. I want to thank you all for uh, being such great guests, but I also am mindful of time, uh, Eva, Sharon, Mark, uh, Martin, I can't wait to have each of you back on the podcast. But before we go, I want to have each of you uh, have a chance to maybe uh, either, you know, cement home a point that you made during the, the show or tell us a little bit more about what you're working on, uh, where people might be able to reach you if you want, uh, if you've got your favorite Twitter handle or anything like that. Um, but we'll start with you, Martin. Anything you want our listening audience to know? The um, the thing that that I'm really particularly interested in that we're doing that we didn't really get a chance to talk much about is uh, we've been trying to look seriously at the other 95% of our assets that don't go out the door uh, to charities and try to find a way to invest some of those assets in our own community. Uh, We send almost all of our money out of the community, often even out of the country, in order to make the returns that we can give out as grants. Uh, We've found over the last 10 years that we've been doing it that it's uh, not inconsistent with our role of granting to charities to also take a portion of, of our endowments and invest them directly in the community uh, for a mix of social return and financial return. We're getting good uptake from the charitable and nonprofit sector. Uh, For most of them, they've never had any access to financing. And so it's taken some time, but they're gradually learning uh, appropriate ways to use primarily debt financing. And that's very exciting to see that develop, and we're very pleased with uh, uh, with the outcomes just from our first ten years of doing that. So that because that anniversary is on my mind, uh, that's something that uh, if we had another hour, I'd want to take some of it to talk about that, but I won't. 
Thank you. I've added it as another topic. That's a fantastic. I love that idea, by the way, about investing back into the community. I know other foundations do that as well. So thank you for sharing that with us, Martin. Over to you, Eva. What do you want our listeners to hear and uh, and think about? Well, I'll just invite uh, anyone listening who's in Calgary on the day of October 24th, that's Thursday, to our what we call a Vital City event. It's our annual celebration where we lift up and profile and celebrate the great work of the charitable sector uh, in Calgary and addressing many community needs. And it's a lovely networking and gathering place with uh, good food and very good entertainment and good learning. And so that happens once a year, and it happens to be on Thursday the 24th. And hopefully there won't be a snowstorm that impedes people's travel. Exactly. You can find all the information Um, on our website. And usually we have about 800 people filling the room, so it's a pretty big deal. What time of day is that, Eva? That's a Thursday. It starts at 4.30 to 7.30. Okay. I was selfishly asking because... Because you might come. Well, I might come, of course. But... um, uh, the 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 podcast will actually be posted on the internet at uh, at one sorry twelve forty five Mountain Time that day. So they'll actually have time. Oh, and to there hear. you go. They'll have some. So if they're good. right on the money, very good. They have to be right on the money. Um, I'm glad it wasn't later because they'd have to be time travelers to make that happen. Um, but uh, that's a great uh, piece. Thanks for sharing that, Eva. Anything else before I, I move on to... to uh... Well, I'll just mention one of the things that we are focused on, and it's different for uh, for us, certainly, is our role in systems change. Um, as we get bigger and have more resources to give, $50 million last year we gave into the community. Uh, we have lots... People are constantly asking us for letters of support. So we have increasing influence. How can we use that to put our resources, our influence, our knowledge, our abilities onto the high levers, high high impact levers in a system for positive change. That's a question we're asking in the organization. It's maybe in my time, it's the first time we're asking that question. And so I'd invite any dialogue from uh, leaders in the general sector to talk with us about that. Okay, so the charge has been put out, folks. When you hear this, remember what Eva asked and start ringing her phone. Thank you for that, Eva. Mark, uh, you have the floor. What do you want us to, 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 to think about or remember as we uh, take our leave today? Well, absolutely. And I go back to Sharon's comment of, you know, once you know one community foundation, you know one community foundation. They're very different, diverse. They operate sometimes differently. There's sometimes commonality, obviously, between them. And I don't think anything I said today was that uh, novel. In fact, I think I probably heard uh, speakers at uh, CFC conferences talking about different issues around, you know, how do we balance, um, on the one hand, the uh, endowments versus trying to encourage uh, funds to be going out to people and things like that. So these are issues that are alive and that need to be uh, dealt with. And um, in California, this uh, last, I think the last couple of weeks, there was a $750 million endowment for um, climate change. And uh, I just thought it was a little bit ironic. And so I actually wrote to the university that got it and I asked for a clarification and they said, it's actually only 40% is an endowment and the rest is not. But um, I was just thought it was a little funny because climate change, I mean, if you believe climate change is important and you believe climate change is something that needs to be acted on quickly, I'm not sure about whether more money should be spent now or maybe we should only spend 3.5% and then think about, you know, 500 years from now. But anyway, I'll leave it to others to think about that one. 
um, like if, if there is a 500 like years from now. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to let you know my opinion on climate change. I'll just keep that to myself. But anyway, the moral of the story is um, that, uh, yeah, there's a lot of uh, great work that goes on. I see it uh, daily in terms of community foundations, and I want them to be just more effective and uh, do things. And I agree with Martin's point in terms of uh, focusing in on if you're going to have assets, how they can be used. And in fact, we always focus on what's the most complicated system we can come up with to invest money and do things when in fact there are very simple ways of uh, basically doing things uh, so that you can help charities in the community for example that need capital to build a women's shelter or whatever there's a lot of much simpler sort of things that I gravitate to because maybe I just can't understand some of the most complicated ones uh, so there's a lot of opportunities there and it'd be great to see community foundations uh, thinking about these uh, these issues and if people want to uh, follow me I'm my Twitter handle I guess is at Canadian charity and uh, as you mentioned Vincent earlier um, we have the global philanthropy blog and we also have our uh, charity data website that if people want to make uh, use of uh, they're more than welcome to and thank you very much for the invitation to be on the podcast well thank you mark and uh, so uh, Eva threw the baton out to charity leaders uh, you're throwing the baton to community foundations Sharon what do you want people to hear well, I guess um, uh, I should do a shout out on our vital signs report released this week in Toronto. And so um, for any organizations that are listening, we also launched, this is kind of a build on Mark's point, uh, our first round of vital signs grants. Um, we've done vital granting for years, but these grants are different in that they are easy to apply for. They are for organizations that are already doing work on the things that are reported on in vital signs and they are completely undesignated um, and so we're hoping to make it easier for smaller orgs to get money fast for the things they're already doing and uh, the vital signs report is at torontofoundation.ca it's uh it's a, it's all about inequality congratulations toronto is the most unequal city in the country in fact uh, i learned this year through our vital signs research that in fact our child care costs in Toronto are the highest in all the OECD countries of the world. So um, we have a long way to go and uh, are uh, trying to fight the good fight and, to, to Mark's point, make it simpler for um, money to flow to organizations in this community and beyond. Those vital signs reports are amazing uh, across the country. I congratulate all of you who, who pull them together. Um, they're really important to the sector. They're really important to the community. And, um, and I'm glad that you were able to promote the one that just came out from Toronto. So, and I think Martin in the pre-show, you said yours were out, what, this week recently? Yes, last week. Yeah. And then Eva, when does, when does Calgary's come out? Or Last week we all we all launched the same day, October second. Yeah, so it's out. Okay, thank you. And for those of us not in the community foundation space, that's important for us to to hear that too. We don't we we pay attention to when they come out, but we don't know the inner working. So that's great to know that they do come out at the same in the same time slot every year. So with that, thank you everyone. Um, with that, a gift of another brain trust philanthropy has been committed. Well, that's about it for this episode of Brain Trust Philanthropy. I hope you'll join us next month when we will be visiting with Kathleen McPherson from the University of Calgary, Mike Meldrum, CEO of the Calgary Health Trust, Arla Gustafson, CEO of the Royal University Hospital Foundation in Saskatoon, and Ron Bailey with Ron Bailey & Associates in Winnipeg. 
Our topic, is volunteerism dead? Are we actually bowling alone? The role of the volunteer in post-millennium philanthropy. Until then, take care of yourselves, and we look forward to talking with you soon. Brain Trust Philanthropy is powered by Vitreo and is produced by Lauren McMurray at Alchemy Communications and by me, Vincent Duckworth. Brain Trust Philanthropy is recorded in beautiful downtown Calgary, Alberta. Follow our show and engage with fellow listeners on Twitter at Powered by Vitreo. You can subscribe to Brain Trust Philanthropy on iTunes or by visiting our website at vitreogroup.ca. Wishing all of you success in your mission, peace in your lives, hope in your hearts. I'm Vincent Duckworth. <laughs>